You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today's a guest speaker of Dan Held, the growth lead at Kraken Digital Asset Exchange. And Dan also sold two of his companies in the crypto space. And today we'll talk about those two acquisitions and also about this growth focus that Dan has and also about finding the product market fit. So Dan, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Interchange, the most recent company that you sold. Yeah, thanks. So my background um, started out in the crypto space in 2012, built my first product in 13. Didn't really know what I was doing at the time. I sort of stumbled and bumbled my way into tech. Um, started out by building a mobile product called ZeroBlock, which was a price tracker. And you can imagine with the volatility of Bitcoin, people check the price a lot. So the stickiness of the product became really, really, really sticky. Um, sort of stumbled and bumbled my way into tech. That was my foray into product management. Over the course of the next uh, seven years, was in a, I, I uh, found myself in a few different roles of product management and product marketing. So that also I'd include like product marketing and growth marketing. <clears throat> um, that I think kind of builds the base for me being a growth guy, uh, both growth products and growth marketing. And that's what I'm doing over at Kraken, which is a growth lead. I'm looking at how to efficiently take a user from awareness to more on the growth marketing awareness you know, through uh, sign up or install. So that's more user acquisition. Um, and then all the way through inside the product to the make magic moment, say first trade. Uh, and that's, this is a team of people. Um, I'm working across a couple different functions there. And uh, that's what I'm working on now. Um, but yeah, stumbled and bubbled my way through tech, had a couple acquisitions, um, mainly, you know, focused on the mobile side, but done a lot of both, both web and mobile, <clears throat> mobile work. And yeah, that, that's, I think, a good summary of what I've done. Perfect. Really short, really dense bio. So let's start with those two acquisitions that you had, and let's start with uh, the most recent one, Interchange. How did it happen? Did you actually plan for it, or did you just, you know, did someone just email you saying like, "Hey, we like your company. Let's let's discuss the potential of acquisition acquiring it." Yeah. So I think there was a ton of synergies between Kraken and Interchange. Interchange was a post-trade reconciliation software. That's a fancy way of saying accounting. So it's an accounting software. Nice. Um, with crypto, accounting is really complex. There were needs at Kraken, both for Kraken's customers and Kraken itself that we could solve. And so I think it's a really, really nice fit with our two companies. And, and that's how it happened. I, you know, I don't think there was like a, a conscious linear effort from day one that we were going to go, you know, be acquired by an exchange. But right time, right place, right team. Uh, we've also had a great relationship with Jesse. I've known Jesse for seven years. Um, you know, we're not best friends or anything, but we've had a good relationship there. So I think that that helped enable something like this, because ultimately with like a smaller uh, team coming on board a larger company, there's got to be a lot of meshing and fit there. And so, you know, culturally uh, and team function, you know, we were a great fit for Kraken. So, yeah, I would say it was more of a, a, a random thing that occurred, but happy that we landed up there. We, we landed there and I'm, I'm really excited to see uh, you know, Interchange is still alive today, still being uh, used by external customers <clears throat> and excited to see what they do with it long term. 
That's really cool, and congrats on the acquisition. So generally, I know I like asking those questions, but my listeners do like to hear the answers for those because it gives them some hope, you know. Uh, but how did it feel when you actually got acquired? So like when you just received that, did you like get an email saying like, we do want to acquire you finally after like, you know, a couple of weeks or months of discussions or what happened there basically? What did it feel like? Yeah, so... Yeah, that's a good question. Um, this is my second acquisition. And there's always this state of you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if it's going to go through. So you don't want to attach your hopes and dreams to it happening. Then sometimes it looks like it's not going to happen. There could be a due diligence problem. There could be a cap table problem. There could be background check problem. Who knows, right? Um, that, that The background check one didn't happen with us. But I'm just saying there's all sorts of little hiccups here that could occur. And there's, there's not like this moment where they're like, hey, we like you. Cool. 24 hours later, here's a check. It's, it's a really long process of, you know, weeks to months. So you're going to be in this sort of like, you know, a purgatory state where you're in between both heaven and hell of like um, being acquired or not being acquired. And depending on the state of your startup, you know, you might need to be acquired or you might, uh, you might need to go raise money. So if you're not raising money, this acquisition conversation is a bit distracting. Also with employees, you know, when do you disclose this to employees? Because it's relevant information, but, you know, a lot of startups have acquisition offers pop in, you know, it's not like they're really that infrequent, you know, they just might be at different values and might make sense or might not make sense. So startup founders get hit up about acquisition, mergers and other opportunities decently often, but when are they real enough to go talk to the rest of the team about it? you don't want them distracted because they're still building. That's a tricky problem. Um, you know, we, we've had, you know, in my experience, I've had acquisition deals fall through. So, you know, I would say like, whenever you're approached with this opportunity, keep your expectations very level. You never know what's gonna happen. Um, there's a lot of different due diligence check marks that need to go, go on. There's, I mean, there's a whole process of negotiation alone. That's huge. Uh, cash, you know, cash and equity components. How does that look? You're also, as a startup founder, thinking about your employees, your, your investors who are often your friends or people that you know or people that you've worked with before. So you're thinking through like, well, uh, will this acquisition make them happy? Will they like the optics of it? Um, will my employees stay on? And sometimes they're required to stay on to make the deal happen. So it, it, it's a lot of moving parts. It's not like this glorious moment like you see in the movies where, they just, right. cut you, they just cut you a check and you walk away and, and buy a boat. You know, it's not, not really like that. Um, you know, and a lot of the acquisitions as well, like when you look at acquisitions in general and startup world, you know, they're not everyone's making a hundred million dollar check, right? That That's a pretty rare sort of event. Um, most acquisitions and startups are very small. Um, so I think a lot of people like assume, oh, you, you sold your company, you must have sold it for a billion dollars or something. Right. Right. Yeah. You're like, you know, we were a small startup of, of six people. So, you know, different sizes mean different things to different people. But yeah, it, it's um, it's not it's not like the movies, I think, is the easiest way to put it. Definitely not. I think that's one of the major problems, especially now during COVID, when pretty much everyone is trying to become a startup founder. It's just the movies, the, the old stories of, you know, the Silicon Valley. They just over-glamorize the whole process. Uh, and... What's your major takeaway from that acquisition? I mean, besides the fact that it might take long and that, you know, uh, 
you shouldn't be like way too excited because most of the acquisitions are really pretty small. So what's your major takeaway besides those two things? Um, you know, I think if you, if you have a good product process, if you have a good team that makes you much more attractive, I think that was a good component of, of how we fit with these companies, you know, when we were being approached, um, we had a great product team in terms of pedigree execution and, um, you know, making sure that everything's in order. So like demonstrating good product process, demonstrating good accounting and legal infrastructure, like don't have weird cap table, you know, stuff like that is will hurt you later on if you have a funky cap table. <clears throat> and sometimes the thought is, oh, we can clean this up later. But when it's time for an acquisition, you know, you're going through due diligence, you might not have enough time to go clean this stuff up. So I think that's really critical is keeping that in perspective, which is around um, just making sure your house is in order. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the type of advice I got pretty frequently from people who got acquired or who made the acquisition on the PE side. So you definitely make sure that from day one, you are keeping your books clean, basically. So let's talk about the fundraising. So how you got to that acquisition, how did you actually manage to raise your first initial rounds for the uh, interchange? Yeah, so we raised a 1.2 million family and friends round in uh, late 17. That was during the peak of crypto enthusiasm. So that was relatively easy to raise. Um, we, it's a combination of um, Co-founder Matt Galligan and myself, we were the ones who raised the most. Um, we had deep connections with VCs. Uh, we weren't big enough for a VC check yet, but um, you know, individual checks from a wide variety of you know both uh, professional investors, uh, angel investors, and uh, friends and family. Um, I actually no family. <laughs> we actually raised from family yet. That's that's a thing I'd like to stay away from. I think. When you're doing a high risk startup, I'm not sure if I would advise going to family for that because they're not going to know the risks that they're taking. It also makes Thanksgiving and Christmas really awkward. So, <laughs> yeah. so we didn't do that. You know, the people we raised money from are all professionals. Even if they were angels, we weren't their first angel check. So these are people that I knew and worked with at companies like Uber or, um, you know, small angel funds that I knew over the last seven years have been in Silicon Valley. Went to dinner, happy hours with them. And over the years, developed a good relationship. It's all based on relationships, after all. Um, so that's the core bulk of where we raised our money from was these deep existing relationships in Silicon Valley with professionals who had made their money at startups or were professional investors, um, but all were professional in terms of like cutting angel checks. So like I said, where you went the first, you, you don't really want to take money from someone who's their, this is their first angel investment. Um, when you do that, you're going to have to educate them as to what it means to be an angel. And trust me, it's you don't want them breathing down your neck. You want someone who's a professional who understands I'm making an extremely high risk investment. I've made 20 of them. So you failing isn't going to be top of mind. Um, of course, you don't plan to fail, but they know that this is high risk, high reward, that one out of 10 will succeed. So I think, you know, from that perspective, like you, you go to the professionals, even if you have money being thrown at you from individuals who like, let's say it's your family friend or it's your buddy from school who made a bunch of money because he had a restaurant. He's just not going to, he or she is not going to know the, the sort of mentality that they need to have for these type, this type of investing. So even if the money's easy, I wouldn't take it. Go to the pros and go to the ones who understand the risks that they're taking. They'll be much easier investors to deal with. And um, I think it'll be, I think a little bit more 
um, well-rounded in terms of that relationship. Absolutely. I'm totally on the same page with you in terms of not raising money from the family. I feel that it's just like so weird to, to, to ask family for, for money. So uh, I would recommend to stay away from that as well. It's just too personal, I guess. Um, so let's talk about your early growth. You now are, spe- I mean, you're specialized basically. That's one of your major strengths. How did you approach that problem when you were just pre-fundraising? I imagine that you started raising money from you know that, that initial 1.2 million round. You started when you already had some sort of traction, right? How did you manage to get to that traction before you get any money? Yeah, so it depends on the product. So Interchange was B2B. We had to raise money before we found traction. Um, due to the nature of the, you know, it cost a lot of money to build a B2B tool. You can't really go launch an MVP and get quick feedback as, as easily as you could with a consumer product. Consumer products are a bit easier to launch a really dirty MVP. Dirty MVP would be, you know, this is a minimum, vi- minimum viable product, but the product might be so viable, you're a little bit embarrassed of it. However, getting out there early gets you feedback. With enterprise tools, businesses don't want a half-built tool. They want a fully built tool. You know, so for them, I think that's way different um, in terms of how businesses want to uh, use software. <clears throat> um, with with uh, zero blocks, that was a consumer product. That was the first one, uh, first product they built that got acquired. We launched what we felt solved the pain points in the market. So we were trying to check the live price of Bitcoin in 2013, and no mobile product at the time had the live price. So that's what we built. We built the, uh, the first live price tracker and had a news feed, which built a habit building sticky loop. Um, you know, so with that, we built what we felt was solving a problem. Our hypothesis was correct. People also felt that same problem. And that's what enabled us to find early product market fit um, was solving our own problem and hypothesizing that maybe a lot of other people have this problem too. You know, it's pretty intuitive as well. When you think about it, you're like, well, of course people want to check the live price of Bitcoin. It fluctuates all the time. So it wasn't exactly rocket science there. Um, I didn't formalize those product skills to understand how we had stumbled upon that success until later. But just being obsessed with solving the problem, I think, is a core fundamental product tenant tenant that people should have. Um, That obsession is what enables you to build something great. It enables you to reduce friction because you're obsessed with solving the problem. I think that's how great products are built. And, and zero block was truly my obsession. Interchange is a little bit different because we weren't an enterprise company. You know, I'm, I'm just an individual, but I had had early experience in tax software in the crypto space. So it felt like I understood that there's a great need there, which there is, there's a big pain point. But with this, we had to do more co- like uh, research and discovery of exactly how user flows worked for large enterprise customers. So that was a little bit different because we had to go build it first and while we're building it we're getting feedback and then that helps us build it and then we're doing trials and then those trials turn into customers so it's a bit different of an experience you're only having a few customers or dozens of customers versus tens of thousands or millions of of, of, uh, consumers so quite a bit different process in terms of product development and finding product market fit Um, so yeah those are the two different that's how we approach it now those two different types of products Right. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about, you know, achieving that product market fit and growth. Most of my listeners are actually pre-seed slash seed stage, aka most of them, they're broke. Uh, so <laughs> one of the questions that I get pretty frequently is, you know, how do I get those initial very first customers with a pretty much tiny budget? So like as little as thousand or two thousand dollars. Yeah. So that uh, I think that's some of my bread and butter uh, in terms of what I'm good at. 
it's not a skill you can transfer or get paid for, but it's something that, it's something that I've done before. So, you know, going back to that core root of, of, of obsession of building something great, that obsession bleeds over into user acquisition. <clears throat> where are your potential users? Where are they? Are they on Twitter? Are they on Facebook? Are they on Reddit? Um, with Bitcoin, they're specifically on Twitter and Reddit. Those are like the two most popular channels they hang out in. So there's a couple typical strategies you can do that are kind of boring, but everyone's doing them. SEO, content marketing, those work pretty well. You write a blog post, you cut it up into pieces, you splice it across Reddit, Twitter, LinkedIn, you do that consistently, that can work. So it's like a social plus content marketing strategy works well, SEO works well, but that's the boring stuff. Everyone can do those. That's a long process. So I'll tell you a few stories of how I acquired customers, but um, these don't these don't copy paste very well. When you find an acquisition method for an early stage startup that's free, but also like really creative, it's sort of like arbitrage. It's only going to exist for a brief period of time. Now, brief could be one month, one year, or a couple of years. But you're sort of arbitraging attention. So you found some way to get people's attention for free, and they're installing your products. But that's not going to last for forever. And I'll give you a few examples. So one was Facebook groups. And, and uh, what we did is I had a mobile product and I built this for fun. It's called Hover. It's a mobile app for drone pilots, so like recreational drone pilots. And at, the, mm -hmm. at its peak, 25% of all registered U.S. drone pilots use the app. So pretty huge market penetration nice. for, for something we built for free and for fun. All right. Facebook groups back in 2014, you could join as many Facebook groups as you wanted, and most of the admins hadn't put in permissioning where you require permission from the admin to post. So you could just post. And what we did is I joined hundreds of drone uh, Facebook groups, and I posted about Hover. I'm like, hey, it's a free app. Come get it. Now, of course, some people are hating on it. They're like, this is spam. And I'm like, it's not spam if you like it. Um, and also our conversion rate, like our, our retention rate from acquisition methods from uh, Facebook groups was higher than our organic baseline because those Facebook groups are targeted towards drone enthusiasts because the drone enthusiasts had joined those Facebook groups. So <clears throat> it was a phenomenal way to acquire the, the right type of user. It's a relevant network. You know, if I posted in moms selling cookies, my conversion rate is going to be zero and my retention rate is going to be nothing. But these are highly relevant, a highly relevant topic relative to my product. It was the right place to engage. A lot of people use the forums to talk back and forth about parts, drone equipment, filming techniques. So it was an active community. And the way I presented Hover was tasteful. It was, hey guys, check it out. It's free. Um, tons of people use it. Let me know what you like built. So it's a feedback loop plus a user acquisition method. And uh, that was one way. And, and But after you know six months, Facebook started to clamp down on, on posting permissions, for example, towards the end. If I posted more than 15 at a time, it would ban me from posting in groups for a month. So then I, I recruited product advocates, people who loved Hover, and I asked them if they could post in these five groups. So then I started to use them to get around that restriction. Um, so we acquired over 20,000 users for free that way. Pretty impressive for a niche industry like drones. Um, it was in the retention rate was phenomenal. Um, so, you know, that was one of my most proud, proud acquisition methods, app store optimization. Now, this is something that translated from you know, being something very niche to that was my role at, at Uber, one of my roles. 
where I did use after optimization for Uber Rider, which is the app you call Uber, Uber Driver, and Uber Eats. Um, <clears throat> so I think all of these, you know, all of these, um, th this experience, both at the small scale and large scale with ASO, I think is really critical and under, under, you know, it wasn't, at the time it wasn't looked at very much. So like when I did after optimization in 2013 for zero block, the title of your app in the app store could be 255 characters, but after 50, it was truncated, so you couldn't see it. So I just keyword stuff to title with, with Bitcoin, crypto, and we, oh, ranked nice. number, we ranked number two for the word Bitcoin. And so that got us tens of thousands of um, installs. So that that's pretty cool, right? Um, yeah, that's, that's you, impressive. Right, so app store optimization, but now Apple has, um, but now Apple has clamped down on like the, the titles only I think thirty characters, and Apple's search results are now you know really kind of funky in terms of how they display organic versus paid. So that's why I call these arbitrage moments. They don't exist for forever, but when you see them and you try it and you're like, wow, this works. It really you know these are great free methods to acquire users. You shouldn't pay for users and when you first start out. If you're paying for users, you're doing it wrong. You should figure out some scrappy way to get thousands or tens of thousands of users for free, whatever way possible, any any way possible um, that's still tasteful and relevant. And when you do that, it'll give you enough of a feedback loop to make sure you found product market fit and iterate on that. Uh, but yeah, never pay for users in the beginning. Figure out super scrappy ways to, to acquire customers uh, require users and I think through that that'll be your initial feedback loop that you need because there's a chicken and egg problem if you don't have a feedback loop of users using the product and you don't know if you have a you have product market fit <clears throat> so be f do it free do it scrappy <laughs> nice I think I just found the perfect title for the episode never pay for first users uh, that's that's awesome and I think that's really great advice I mean I personally tried many 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 scrappy ways my Instagram and Facebook accounts were blocked multiple times, so I had I tried that. <laughs> but let's talk about the finding that source of acquisition. So later on, once you decide to you know scale this pro process, and you just can't keep going and you know publishing those uh, those things to raise or Facebook to keep up the growth per month of users, how should you focus on one specific? Uh, I mean, how should you decide which resource basically is the most profitable for you specifically what uh, what kpis should people look at uh, so what's the question exactly what kpis so when you're deciding what uh tool to focus on what uh traction channel basically to go to focus on like 90 percent of your force what kpis are the ones that should be determining yeah so first and foremost you have to look at your bucket and make sure that there's no it's not a leaky bucket so when you're acquiring users, if they're all churning and your retention rate eventually goes to zero, you know, over the course of like a couple of months, then you don't have product market fit. I think one of the, defining product market fits hard. I think one of the easier ways to do it, but it's, it's always in retrospect <laughs> because retention curves are based on historical data is when your retention curve starts to flatten. So that means that over time, you know, 80% of people use it day one, 30% day seven, 25% day 30, and if day 90 is is flat, then I think you found product market fit or, or barely declining. 
that's how I would determine if you found product market fit. Now, I used an arbitrary time time gating there of, of a couple months. Could be more than a couple months because the users of your product may session differently. Um, but that's how I would define like finding product market fit. So if you're acquiring users and they keep churning, then you haven't found product market fit. You need to fix that first. Then after you fix that, going out and acquiring customers, you're looking at, um, you know, I think when you're a small scrappy startup, like you don't really need to focus too much on counting impressions or reviews. All you need to look at is are you getting fucking installs or signups? Like that's it. Like right. who cares how many impressions you're getting now? You can just eyeball it. You know, you're you're trying to be really scrappy. And if you posted in, let's say, 20 Facebook groups and you only got one install, well, we don't need to run the numbers. We know what's up. <laughs> we know it's not working. You know, so if you find that it's working, like you're not really focused on optimization at this point because you're still trying to find that local maxima. You know, you're not you're not really focused on like getting one percent higher conversion because you're just trying to get the word out there and see who who installs the app or signs up, and you're just going across any method possible to figure that out. When you hit it, you're gonna you're gonna know. You're gonna right. know, okay, this worked. Um, now, if you want to continue to mine that vein of user acquisition, then maybe there should be some thought around conversion. So looking at your view to install rate or your uh, impression to sign up rate or something like that. Um, you know, so that's when you would focus on KPIs around that. Other than that, it's, it's finger in the wind. When you hit, when you strike gold, you're going to know it. But yeah, that's it. That's how I think through it. Yeah, perfect. I mean, don't get like too focused on those metrics. I mean, that, as you said, when you hit the right one, you'll you'll know it for sure. So let's go to the last two questions of the episode. First one, you know, a lot of founders now are trying to start their companies, and the question is, should I actually? What should I do about the fundraising? Should I wait till the uh, pandemic is over, or should I actually go out and start trying to fundraise now? What's your advice on that? That's a great question. I'm not sure if I'm qualified enough to <laughs> to give people advice as to how they should approach it, but I can give you my opinion, my uninformed opinion. Um, you know, I think there's been a lot of VC money already deployed into funds. So remember, VCs raise money too. They raise money from a bunch of other investors, big pension funds and governments, and then they have a mandate to allocate that money. So VCs then need to go allocate that money to startups. They have to do that within a certain timeline, which means they have to invest in startups even if it's if it's a you know even if there's a bear market, and so I, I wouldn't worry too much about this impacting like the source of, of money out in the in the fundraising world. Now, when it comes to angel checks, you know if you're trying if you're just getting started, it might be a little tougher because investors are hesitant because their personal finances are a little bit down. So that might be trickier. When it comes to fundraising, I mean finding traction first and then fundraising later is a whole lot easier to do. Otherwise, you're constantly selling a dream. And mm -hmm. you've got to be the best salesman in the world if you want to sell that. You've got to be the Steve Jobs ability to storytell. Because you're telling a story, you're, you're painting a picture of the future. And if you're raising money with that traction, you have to paint that picture perfectly. And it's going to be a whole lot more pitches than you think. I mean, no matter how you do it, whether you have traction or not, you're going to pitch a lot more people than you ever thought you were going to pitch. But it's a whole lot easier once you have some traction. Also, you know, when it comes from a dilution standpoint, ultimately you'd, you'd want to have more traction than less. Uh, hopefully you get more uh, less dilution if you prove out the concept versus someone betting on you just from an idea. Uh, they might 
you know, I think that gives you a stronger, more defensible valuation. But yeah, I, th I think finding traction first is the better way to go for, for most entrepreneurs. Absolutely. Most definitely. I think that was a good advice, you know, uh, so good, good question there. I, I forgot to ask you one more question in terms of annual investments. Uh, so usually after the founders sell their companies or have like a somewhat at least successful exit, they start mentoring or doing angel investments for other smaller startups. Do you do this as well or <clears throat> not the case? I don't. Um, not because they don't believe in it. It's just I don't believe I have the the skills to go make to make angel investments. I I built a lot of products, but I have not I don't think I have the right mindset yet to properly filter, evaluate and then deploy capital into into angel investments. Um, also, Bitcoin is posed to be, so I've been in Bitcoin since 2012. I've been through three bull runs. Um, there's still a ton of a ton of um, growth potential for Bitcoin. So most of my net worth is in Bitcoin right now. I believe that, you know, for, for example, Bitcoin's market cap is only like 200 billion. That's tiny. Apple is $2 trillion and that's one company. You know, yep. gold, gold is like 15 trillion. So for Bitcoin to be gold 2.0, it's got a lot of room to grow. And for me, when I deploy capital into different things, like for me, Bitcoin's phenomenal because not only do you have incredible price appreciation, so like the returns you would see at a startup, you would, the returns you would see as an angel investor in a startup, but Bitcoin isn't dependent on operational or execution. Like with a startup, I know they have the team has to go well, they have to succeed in their competitive environment. With Bitcoin, Bitcoin just has to exist. So my risk reward profile is, is much better. So for me, right now it's it's all almost all in Bitcoin. Um, but after the next bull run, probably take some of that and maybe spin up a fund if I feel that I'm I'm comfortable enough deploying capital and understanding the risk that I'm taking. Perfect answer. I think that's like great answer. Some people are just not quite fit, you know, at this specific stage. So perfect. And I wish you best luck with Bitcoin. Not such a big fan, but <laughs> You know, it's completely uh, just different views. And last question is call to action. What's the one thing that you want the listener to do as soon as the episode is over? And this is for like small, small startups, right? Mostly, yes. Mostly B2B SaaS, pre-seed. I would say take risk. Take really fucking crazy risk. I mean, <laughs> if, you know, people worry about the optics of doing some user acquisition methods, or like, for example, like when um, my girlfriend was, was looking for a job in tech, we would use email checkers. So we would so say she would apply to uh, Facebook or something, right? We would look on LinkedIn who the hiring manager would likely be. And then we would take that name and then put it into an email generator and check, <laughs> check the, server, the email server to see if that was a valid email. And then we would cold email them. And the hit rate was like 80%. Where they would reply and be like, "Awesome, thanks for reaching out. Like, uh, let's let's hop on the phone." It's like you would skip the recruiter screen and go straight to the hiring manager screen. Nice, nice. So like, stuff like that, like that feels awkward. That feels a little bit weird. You know, you're like, "This is crazy." I'm just like cold DMing them. Dude, cold DMing works. Or on Twitter, replying to like an investor or replying to uh, a, a potential customer and being like, "Yo, check out our product." Like, be shameless. Just go out there, sell it be bold, um, do crazy methods of acquisition. Like even if you pop into your competitors, like if your competitor has a forum or comments, like pop in there and like show your own product. Like, who knows, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, I love it. I mean, now there are better tools for, for cold emailing, so you don't have to actually like generate it anymore. So make sure that you use nice resources, but definitely perfect advice, you know, be bold, you know, do those weird things and be shameless. You know, if someone tells you, hey, stop spamming me, like, okay, I'll go stop spamming. If it's working, then why would you stop? Exactly, exactly. It's just uh, being a founder is being shameless. So perfect advice. We're going to wrap it up here. My call to action is go to fundraisingradio.com. There is a whole section on uh, blockchain fundraising and specifically, uh, you know, acquisitions there. There's one even, I think, called sad acquisition. So if you want to hear some, you know, sad stories about acquired companies, that's the place for you to look. So have a great day. Take a look at the description of this episode. I'll make sure I'll leave some content information for Dan. So if you have any additional questions or curious to learn more, go to the description of this episode and have a good day.